Thank you, worship team. The uh, scripture for this morning comes from Psalm 139. In fact, it is Psalm 139. And you can find it in your pew Bibles on page 521 and 522. And it'll be helpful if you can turn to there and follow along with us as we go through uh, this passage of scripture together. The, the, the Psalms are really the songbook the hymn book, the worship book of ancient Israel. Uh, They're songs that were composed uh, so that the church, uh, God's people of Israel, could could use them uh, to pray. And they're divided into five books. uh, And the book that this particular Psalm 139 comes from is book five, which is uh, kind of the, the book of wisdom. And uh, you you know about wisdom from when we've talked about the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is about living skillfully. It's about knowing how to live with the grain of the universe, how to live along the grain of the created order of things, how to rightly relate to God, our creator, and how to rightly relate to uh, creation. So that's what David is doing in this psalm. He's trying to show us how to relate properly to our uncreated creator God. So let's stand and read the words of Psalm 139 uh, together. Psalm 139, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind And before you lay your hand upon me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. 
and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me take a moment to sit and reflect on God's word. There we go. Now, as many of you know, we're uh, in a sermon series on 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, uh, kind of tracing the life of King David. Right now, we're just about to get to the coronation of King Saul. And, but what we have been doing throughout this sermon series is taking a break every now and then and focusing on a psalm of David. So we're kind of looking at the preamble, the story, the plot line of this character of David uh, from Israel's history. And then we're looking at maybe the heart of David, the prayers of David as expressed in some of these psalms. So that's what we're doing uh, this morning. Uh, this morning, I want to make the uh, argument, and I, I think you'll agree, that there's a difference between knowing something and knowing something. Uh, you can know something intellectually. Like you can know the fact that honey is sweet. Maybe you read it in a book somewhere or saw it on a label. It said honey, sweet. Um, But if you've never actually tasted the honey, if you've never had a sense of the sweetness on your tongue, I mean, you would have to say your knowledge is incomplete. I mean, it can't compare to someone who actually has experienced it, who who actually knows it, who can recognize the taste of honey. That's really knowing uh, my daughter, Hattie, who's uh, just turned four, she's recently discovered the difference between knowing something and, and knowing something in her gut, really experiencing something. Uh, about a year ago, we entered this stage, which I think a lot of kids go through this, uh, where she had to know, and I mean really know, exactly where everyone in the house was at a given time. So if she was kind of playing, you know, with Legos or things that she plays with. And then she looked up and Shauna, her mother, or Gus, her brother, or Bumble, her cat, were not in the place where they last were when she saw them. She freaks out and she has to search around. She starts calling, Mom, Gus, Bumble. She doesn't really care where dad is, incidentally. (laughs) But if anyone else has moved, I mean, she goes on the hunt and it doesn't matter. I mean, if, you know, Shauna's just stepped onto the back porch, it's like, mom, where are you? And so she needs to know. She knows that we haven't left. I mean, she's confident that, you know, the cat hasn't run away, but she, she needs to know in a way that brings comfort. She needs to know in a way that reassures her and gives her a sense of security. When you need comforting, when you or I feel insecure, when we're anxious, we don't just need to know that someone's there. We need to know that someone's there. We need to feel it. We need to understand it. We don't just need to know it intellectually. We need to be comforted by the experience of that knowledge in our hearts. And in today's psalm, David shows us how to move from an intellectual knowledge about who God is to a heart knowledge A more sure knowledge, I would say, a comforting, reassuring knowledge of his presence that gives us a sense of who God is and where we stand in relationship to him. David shows us how to take doctrine, truths about who God is, and turn it into doxology, praise. Uh, Doctrine, truth about God, 
is not meant to just live in your head. It's meant to cause you to live a certain way. It's made to make us sing. It's not just supposed to be stored away like knowledge for a quiz. This is what John Calvin says. He says, in order for doctrine to be fruitful for us, it must overflow into our hearts, into our most intimate affections, and it must spread into our daily routines and truly transform us within. In Psalm 139, David takes the truth about God, doctrine, and applies it like a healing medicine to his heart, to the cares and anxieties that he's feeling in his life. And he does it by focusing on what older theologians called God's perfections, what you and I might have heard called the attributes of God. Now, you and I have attributes, characteristics that are true about us, but the reason that these things are called perfections in God is that whatever God is, he is to an infinite and a perfect degree. So you and I can know things, right? I mean, we all know certain things, but only God possesses perfect knowledge. Knowledge without variation, knowledge without defect, knowledge without decay, only God possesses the perfection of knowledge. You and I can love, certainly, uh, but God loves with a passion and with a purity and with a constancy that if you and I saw it, we could look at it for a thousand years. We'd never be able to find a flaw or a defect with it, and it could love for a million years, and it would never run out. It would never run dry because God loves perfectly. It's one of his perfections. It's part of the unchangeability of his character. So David focuses on these perfections in God, and he really focuses on four of them. You can see if you just look through the psalm, they're kind of broken up in the stanzas. Verse 1 through 6, he focuses on God's perfect knowledge. In verses 7 through 12, he focuses on God's perfect presence. Verse 13 through 18, God's perfect Ownership. Our God is the all creator, all powerful. Verse 19 through 24, God's perfect holiness. We'll look at each of these perfections in the order that David treats them. So, first, let's watch how David marvels at God's knowledge in verse 1. We see in this first section, when David looks at God's attributes, the first thing he draws out is he sees that our God is a wise and an all-knowing God. There's this introductory statement in verse one. He says, oh Lord, you have searched me, past tense, and you have known me. That's this kind of completed knowledge. And then that thought gets expanded to every area of David's life. The Lord sees all of his daily activities, his sitting down and his rising, verse 2. The Lord weighs David's thoughts and even his unspoken words, verse 2 and verse 4. The Lord knows where David has been, and he's already searched out where David will go, verse 3. The whole first verses are for, um, they're, they're full of these uh, knowing verbs. David is saying, God, I'm a completely open book to you. You know everything about me. And we see not only that God is a wise God, an all-knowing God, but also that God is an intensely a personal God. He's not just saying, you know me. He's saying, you know me. 
In verse five, he says, you hem me in. It's like, you know, when you hem something, you're stitching in the boundaries of something like on a quilt. And so David's saying, everything in my life, the whole course of my life has already been plotted out by you, God. I'm never going to walk anywhere that you haven't already foreseen. You've stitched it already in. You, you hem me in behind and before. Everything has been set down already by you. And then that, that phrase, I love this phrase, you lay your hand upon me. That literally means, God, you cup your hand over me. Which means that all of our life... All of our daily activity, all of it unfolds as God holds us in his hand. So if something happens inside your hand, you know it's happening. <laughs> You're not going to miss it. And so David is saying, everything that's happened to me, you know. It didn't creep into your hand by surprise. It had to pass through your hand to get to me. Just take that, let that soak in for a moment. Whatever has happened to you, it had to get through God to get to you. He knows it. It didn't take him by surprise. It might have taken us by surprise. But he is holding his people in his hand. The same image Jesus takes up in John chapter 10. Listen to what he says. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I have knowledge of them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And what? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So whose hand are they in? Are they in Jesus's hand or the father's hand? Well, they're in God's hand because <laughs> he and the father are one. We worship a God in Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the triune God holds you in his hands. David is saying, Lord, all of my life, everything that's happened to me, you know it all, you see it all, every word, every day, every thought from the beginning to the end, yes. And then when David is confronted with the knowledge of God's knowledge, he says, I'm undone. It's too big for me. It's too weighty for me. I can't handle it. It's too wonderful for me. I can't process it. He's saying, if that's what it means to be God, <laughs> to know everything, to fully comprehend everything, if you've got it, God, then I don't have to get it. If you have perfect knowledge, God, then I don't have to fully understand everything. I, I can be content with a certain, certain amount of ignorance because I know you're holding things in your hand. There is this category of uh, events and purposes in the Bible called the secret things. Some people call them the hidden counsel of God's will. It talks about them in Deuteronomy 29.29. Uh, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's a the reasons why God does some of the things he does. There's a reason we don't know it. It's because it's part of the secret things. <laughs> why did he send that storm? Why did that relationship work out the way it did? Why did that accident happen? Why did that illness come? Why me? God doesn't give us the answer to all of those things. There's not a chapter and a verse to those. 
Why do some people get saved? Why are some people not? Those are part of the hidden things of God. And the Bible says that we're not meant to know those. It's enough for us to know that God knows them and that he's holding on to them. And he knows them comprehensively. He knows them perfectly. But there are things that are revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the revealed things, the things that God has given us, those are for us to treasure, to store up, to memorize, and to teach to our children and our children's children. So we've got enough to handle just on the revealed things. And David is saying, I'll leave the secret things to you. The knowledge of those things is too wonderful for me. I can't handle it, but I'm glad you can handle it, God. Next, David is awestruck as he thinks about God's presence, starting in verse 7. And this truth that is kind of echoing through David's uh, mind here is that wherever I go, God is near to me. And David kind of takes all the, the, the cardinal points of the compass. He looks at height in verse 8. He says, well, God, you're in the highest heavens. You're also in the depths of the earth. He talks about width. If I could travel at the speed of light, if I could ride on the wings of the dawn, right? Uh, the speed of light. You know how, how fast light travels from the horizon of the dawn? At the speed of light, it's pretty fast. So if I could travel as fast as the dawn travels from the east all the way to the far reaches of the sea, which the sea is on the western side of Israel. So from the east to the west, if I could go at the speed of light from the east to the west, I wouldn't be able to escape you. Verse 10, I cannot escape. There's that picture again, your hand, your personal guiding, protecting, leading presence. It's following me. It's there. In fact, wherever I go, you're already there. <laughs> you're omnipresent. But he's not just thinking about the fact that wherever he goes, God is with him. There's this other truth here that whatever happens to me, God is with me. In verse 11, David speaks about the darkness. And when he's speaking about the darkness there, he's talking about emotional darkness. He's talking about an experience of darkness, what some people call um, a dark night of the soul. And you know what happens when you're in the dark, uh, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. Well, you don't know where other people are. You don't know where God is. You can't see what he's doing. You feel exposed. You can't defend yourself. David is saying, even if an experience like that comes upon me, when I don't know where God is, I don't know what's happening, I feel vulnerable, I feel helpless, when I go through a time like that, when I go through a trial like that, when I don't know where I am, God knows where I am. And I can know where God is. He is with me. What David is saying is that the darkness is not dark to God. It doesn't mean that the darkness is not dark to us. David is saying, when, when I can't see the light, when the light around me seems like night, I can't find my way. I can't experience the light as light. I can't see what's good as good. I can't taste and see that you are good, God. Are you still good? Are you still there? Are you still with me? And God is saying, yes, I am. I'm not afraid of the darkness, says God. 
The darkness doesn't scare me, although I know that it scares you. So you do not have to be afraid because I am with you. The darkest times that we'll face are no obstacle to God. They don't keep him from getting to us and being with us. And um, kind of the image I was thinking of when I was thinking about this, um, of course, is the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. And you, if you don't know the story, let me tell you. Um, you know, so Liam Neeson is this kind of federal agent who his job is to track down evil people and bring them to justice. And his daughter uh, kind of foolishly goes on this spring break trip to Europe and she gets abducted by human traffickers. And th there's this moment at the beginning of the movie where one of the kidnappers has a cell phone and dad's on the, Liam Neeson is on the other side of the cell phone, right? And the kidnapper is talking smack to him. And he's like, you're never gonna find me. And Liam Neeson says, just wait one minute. I want you to know that I have a very, what? Particular set of skills. I'm good at tracking people. I'm good at finding people. <laughs> you better watch out. <laughs> and sure enough, you get to the end of the movie, he has found his daughter. There's no place that she can go that's too dark. There's no place that she can go that's too far. He tracks her down and he brings her back. Now, I'm not recommending that you go watch the movie, especially if you're a father of daughters. It's terrifying. But it's not terrifying to Liam Neeson because he goes and he finds her. The darkness is not dark to God. It might be dark to us, but that will not keep him from being with you. That will not keep him from finding you. No darkness will be so strong that it can shut you away from God's presence. There's nowhere that you can go that he cannot get to you. Now, how do we show this, by the way? If that's true, how do we as believers kind of demonstrate that in the world? Because there's a lot of darkness in the world today. And one way I would argue it is that we can model God's attitude toward the darkness by being present in the darkness with other people. If you see darkness, you know, which is really an absence of light. So if you see an absence of love in the life of a friend or a neighbor, you can be a presence in that absence. If you see an absence of justice in the world, in society, in your city, you can be present as a just person in that vacuum of injustice. If there's an absence of compassion, if there's an absence of generosity, we as God's people can be present with God's compassion with God's generosity. One of the ways we can live this out is by being present in the absences of the world, by being light in the darknesses of this world and in the lives of our friends. So if you're going into dark times, you're in a great place. Being around Christians, worshiping a God who's not afraid of the darkness is a great place to be. Next. David kind of turns from this uh, admiration of God's character, of his attributes, to this humbling knowledge about God's ownership of his life. Look at this in verse 13. Uh, David kind of takes these truths about God, and then he makes it a, a little more personal. He starts to apply the truth. And what he sees is that God, as the creator-owner of his people, 
is deeply invested in their welfare. There's that little word for at the beginning of verse 13, and it lets us know that David is about to prove something. He's saying, God, you're with me. God, you know everything about me. God, you're intimately interested in me, and I can't run from you. For, look at all the evidence from my life. From the very beginning, God, I know I mattered to you. From the very beginning, everything about me was carefully and intentionally planned by you. Listen to this language. God, you formed my inward parts. Now, forming in the Old Testament, that same word can also be used to mean owning or possessing. So this is the idea that if someone forms something, if someone is the creator of something, they're also the owner of something. God created the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So God is your creator. That means he's your owner. He's your possessor. And so he's saying, God, you have grabbed a hold of me, right? And then the, the, this word inward parts, or some older translations uh, describe, that was, takes that word inward parts, which also can mean kidneys or reins, like the reins on a horse. And why is that? Well, it, it's because uh, they believed, uh, the Hebrews believed that the things that drove us, like the steering wheel for our life, was our deep emotions, our convictions, our motivations. And those weren't in the heart, they believed. They believed those were in the kidneys. And so this kind of like gut level feeling of things that move you and motivate you. David's saying, God, you're holding on to those things. Even the things that motivate me that I don't understand, you understand. And you've got a hold of those things. You possess my reins. You formed and knit together my inward parts. Listen to this language. I'm intricately woven, fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm not patient enough to weave something. But if I were... <laughs> I would be deeply invested in this thing that I had spent hundreds of hours on. How much more so is our God invested in you where every molecule in your being was placed there intentionally by God? Every part of your physical body is a testimony to God's glorious ownership and his creativity in creating you and holding on to you. According to the Bible, human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. They're the only created thing made in the image of God. The Bible says the earth is good, great, mountains are great, um, oceans, great, fish, great, trees, great, beautiful, flowers, awesome, people, wow. People are made in God's image. Only people are fearfully and wonderfully made. If you stood next to the Grand Canyon, which we think of as just, you know, amazing, dumbfounding, and said, God, what do you think? How do I stack up? He would say, you're infinitely more valuable to me than that pile of rocks. You're beautiful. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, we tend to think kind of in our culture that human beings are basically just like really good animals, you know, like reasoning apes, um, you know, or 
kind of complex machines or something like that. But the, the Bible has a completely different perspective. The Bible says in Psalm 8 that we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. We're just a notch below the heavenly beings. And what it says that we have, that even the angels don't have, is that we're made in the image of God. So you stack you up next to an angel, uh, of which if we saw an angel, we'd fall down in fear and, and trembling, but stack you next to an angel, God's saying, you're more wonderful. <laughs> you're more fearfully and wonderfully made. You have my image in you. So this is, this is what Jesus says, by the way, in Luke 12. He's trying to uh, encourage his disciples, and he's saying, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Luke 12, verse 6, not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Stack up all the sparrows in the world. Find the greatest sparrows that you can find. And God say, oh, you don't, it doesn't even compare. Sparrows are great. You are wonderful. You, human beings, are wonderfully made in God's image. Now, Jesus is saying, and David is saying, do you see how much you matter to God? David is saying, God, I think I mattered to you even before I was king. I think I mattered to you even before any of my days came to pass. David, David is saying, I think, God, I mattered to you even when I was an unformed substance, which literally means an embryo. That's what that word means in verse 16. When you saw my unformed substance, you saw me, you knew me, you loved me. Unformed substance can be translated fetus or embryo. So if you've never before uh, heard someone give the biblical argument uh, for the personhood of a human embryo, if you've just kind of heard a, a political argument, well, this is the Bible's case. That, that embryos, uh, fetuses, Unborn people matter to God. Um, the Bible assumes that there's this kind of continuity of personhood throughout someone's life, uh, that someone is a person and has value and dignity and worth and rights because they're people, because they're made in God Im God's image, and they don't lose their human rights, their dignity, just because they're old, praise the Lord, or because they're terminally ill, or because they're disabled. They don't have certain abilities that other people have. That's not what our value is based in. Our value is based in our creation. The image of God is the thing that gives people their value and their dignity. And that's something that the Bible says is given to us in the womb. Uh, if you want another argument, you can look to Exodus chapter 21. And that's where if you, uh, it says if someone accidentally uh, strikes a pregnant woman and causes harm to the fetus that, or the baby that she's carrying, then the manslaughter penalties apply to the person who harmed the fetus. So that the, the Bible is treating that person as someone that, that has rights and the biblical law is protecting that unborn child the same way that it's protecting the mother. I mean, that's the Bible's argument there. And we know that what David is doing is he's looking back at himself as an embryo. And he's assuming that there's some kind of continuity. He's not just saying, hey, that was the stuff that turned into me. He's saying, God, that was me. And you cared about me. 
That wasn't just tissue. That was me. Made in the image of God. Now, you can take this thought and this truth, and you can carry it in a lot of different directions. Um, But David isn't trying to make a political argument here. He's trying to make a very practical argument that's trying to do something for us to help us see how God sees and cares for us and to make practical application uh, to our life. And what he's saying is that you, Christian, you, non-Christian, you, human being, are precious to God. And because God made you intentionally, fearfully, wonderfully, he's not going to abandon the work of his hands. You're not a tree. You're not a sparrow. You're not a pile of rocks. You're something even better and more wonderful. And you matter to God. So David is thinking about God's care for him. And it's driving him to celebrate. It's driving him to praise. And then David does something interesting that um, I think is a little confusing. David moves from this, this kind of lofty praise of God and God, oh, you love me. You fearfully and wonderfully uh, made me. This is so great. Um, I'm, your thoughts are so precious to me. And then in verse 19, he's, he says, oh God, would you just slay the wicked? And you're going, what are you doing, Dave? <laughs> in this final section, God, David appeals to God as a holy and righteous judge. He's talking about God's perfect holiness, God's perfect justice. But what's David saying here? It, it can't be that he's saying that he hates these people, right? I mean, that's, he wouldn't wouldn't do that. Let's see. Uh, Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Okay, maybe you don't completely hate them. Verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. It sure looks like David hates these people. And so the question that we have to ask is, how do you reconcile this with Jesus' command to love your enemies? I mean, did, did David not get the memo? Did Jesus not get the memo? Can we pray this? Uh, should, should we just kind of jettison? Is this just kind of Old Testament uh, fire and brimstone judgmentalism? Well, I actually think we can pray this. I actually think We can't leave this out. And I actually think this isn't just the story of the Old Testament. This is the story of good and evil throughout all of human history. And I actually think Psalm 139 doesn't make any sense without this section. Because you have to ask the question, why is David so concerned about God's knowledge? Why is David so interested in God being present with him? Why is he so preoccupied with God's control over every detail of his life. Well, it's because of these people. It's because of these enemies. It's because there's these people that are, it seem to be threatening David's life. And if they're not threatening David's life, they're certain, certainly threatening the cause of God and his people. There are evil people in the world that David is encountering. And he's, he's going, God, these are wicked people around me. And I need your help. 
So I'm calling upon the all-seeing, all-present, all-knowing, all-controlling, all-just God. And I'm saying, would you please judge the wicked? Would you put an end to evil? Which I think all of us would say, yes, please, no more evil. You know, it seems when you come to a verse like this, a section like this, like it, it could kind of ruin the whole psalm for you. It's almost like you've been eating an apple and you're like, this is a great apple. And then you take a bite and you discover there's a, a worm inside of it. And it kind of ruins everything else. You're like, Ugh, if I had known there was, I wouldn't have even started on this apple. This, this could maybe ruin the whole psalm. Like how can the same person who prayed these lofty things in verse 1 through 18 say these judgmental, intolerant things in verse 19 through 24? Well, in the Bible... You have to know this. Justice, according to the Bible, is not blind. Our conception of justice uh, is that justice is kind of impartial, right? Like justice is this woman who wears a blindfold. Justice in the Bible is biased. It's biased towards good. It's biased towards God's purposes. It's biased against evil. And so God is unafraid to be biased, God's leaders are unafraid to be biased against what's wicked, against what's evil, against what, what defaces and defiles uh, God's creation. And so David is just saying, God, don't, be, you know, don't overlook this evil. Judge it. Next, I, I think David also is not taking vengeance himself. He's leaving vengeance to God. This is what Paul says to do in Romans 12, 19. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Don't take vengeance into your own hands, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. David's not saying, God, let me repay them. Let me crush the wicked. He's saying, no, God, you crush the wicked. And this is the other thing that I, I think is important to remember. The wicked, the category of the wicked, the category of the unrighteous, it cuts both ways. And so David is saying, God, and I think all throughout the Old Testament you see this. You see this in Jonah especially, where Jonah comes and he says to the Ninevites, hey, you wicked people, God is going to judge you. And what do, what do the Ninevites do? Well, they repent. And when they repent, when they come to God, not rebellious, but repenting, what happens? God blesses them. God relents. He doesn't bring judgment. And so what David is saying is David is saying, God, would you judge them? But if they repent, would you be forgiving toward them? That's the picture in the Old Testament. That's the picture in the New Testament. And praise the Lord it is. Because when we come to God and we pray what David prayed, where we say, God, search me. God, know me. What are we going to do? if he finds a grievous way in us. What's David going to do when that holy justice of God cuts both ways? What hope does David have when he says, God, search me out. Let your justice search me out. David's saying, I'm an open book to you. You know everything that I've done. And David's only hope is the same hope that we have. We need to hope in a redeemer. We need to hope in a substitute, that there can be someone who is holy and righteous, whose perfect life can stand up 
for our unrighteous life so that the wrath and the justice of God would fall on that substitute and we can walk free. David prays this prayer of humility, of repentance, where he says, God, search me, search my heart, know my anxious thoughts. That's not a prayer that Saul ever prayed. That's not a prayer I don't think that the hypocritical Pharisees ever prayed. That's not a prayer that can be prayed by anyone who's not a true believer and a follower of God. So David is praying this scary prayer. God, search me. God, know me. God, test me. And I'm wondering, are you okay praying that prayer? (laughs) Does it make you feel uncomfortable to have God kind of thumbing through the pages of your heart? What would he find? What would he see? And what hope do you have if it's only your goodness, if it's only your righteous deeds that are going to stand up for you? If you're hoping to get to the end of your life and come to God and say, God, look at my life, look through the pages of my life, and hopefully the good I've done will outweigh all the bad that I've done. Friends, you need to get another plan. Because the smallest sin is offensive to a holy and just God. The wages of the smallest sin is death. But the gift of God is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So our only hope, David's only hope, is that we would trust in Jesus. And so we look at our circumstances uh, like David, and we have to call out to this all-seeing, to this all-knowing, to this all-present God. But we have an even greater view of the presence and the nearness of God than David could have because he came near in Jesus Christ. He knows you. He's experienced what you've experienced, but not sinned. Uh, He's come near. He's come to earth. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. And he said, hallelujah, no one can snatch my beloved children out of my hand. Do you know that, God? Does that knowledge make your heart sing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to know you. We don't just want to know about you. We want to know you and be known by you. And Lord, we want that knowledge to sink down into our hearts, to change the way we live. Lord, we want it to give us perspective on our trials. Lord, we want to give us uh, hope in the darkness. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, for your beloved people. Would they know your nearness? And Lord, if any of them are in the darkness, if any of them feel overwhelmed, Lord, would you reassure them with your presence? And would you help us as your people to be a presence in the absences of this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.